a beautiful problem in that instance is actually figuring out that you have to go to the next level of humanity. You have to go below what, what separates us culturally and even what may separate us politically and find what actually unites us. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jim Haven's on the show today. Jim's career is rooted in advertising and design, but at his core, he's a storyteller. His corporate clients, including Starbucks, Seattle's Best, Amazon, Nike, and Bill Gates, come to him for help with branding and advertising, but end up on a journey to discover who they are as a company and a brand. The results are ads so grounded in story and emotion that they are more cinema than a commercial. If you go to my show notes, I have links to examples from his portfolio, including ads for Pacifico Beer, which were featured in the New York Times due to how unique and revolutionary they are. Jim is what I call a guerrilla-style storyteller. He immerses himself into the corporate culture of each client and then goes on a journey, camera in hand, to find the visual and emotional story that captures the essence of his client and the products they sell. His Pacifico beer campaign took him to remote beaches of the Baja Peninsula, and Jim tells the story on this podcast of how that campaign evolved. One of Jim's most unique assignments was when he was hired by the opposition party in the 2012 Venezuelan election, trying to find ways to encourage young people to vote in the face of a massive voter suppression campaign run by Hugo Chavez. Jim was also asked by Bill Gates to create one of the most thoughtful and elaborate gifts I've ever heard of for U2 frontman Bono. Without spoiling the story of how that went down, I'll just say that this assignment from Bill Gates took Jim all over the world. Jim started his career at the legendary firm Goodby Silverstein in San Francisco, and he now lives in London and Seattle, where he runs a creative consultancy, Applied Daydreams. I was scheduled to interview Jim in person in Seattle, but a snowstorm had different plans, and I ended up talking to him via an internet connection, so the sound quality is sketchy at times. But despite the connection problems, I really enjoyed this talk with Jim Haven, who is one of the few people I know who can legitimately be referred to as an international man of mystery. So without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive into Jim Haven's world of advertising and design. Jim Haven, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Nice to, nice to be here. Yeah. It's cool what you're doing, you know, having known you for a while, like I guess most of my life, <laughs> knowing where you were like as a, like a guitar player and then going into become like a lawyer. It's cool to see you doing other things and, and running this podcast. It's fun. Big challenge. So it's great. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. Uh, I have the same uh, observations about you because, you know, we grew up together. You were a few years ahead of me and I was friends with your brother, Mark, but uh, I was always um, admiring you from afar because you, you had such a, it, it seemed like um, growing up a kind of a, a, an exotic sort of trajectory uh, in life. You know? <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was always like, how, how did he find that opportunity and how did he do that? And, and so now we're here and I get to ask those questions, all these questions that I've been wondering about for years. So thanks for being on the podcast. Cool. Yeah. Fun. So Jim, tell my listeners what it is you do. How do you describe your job? Oh, you know, my, 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 my job is a bit of an evolution from, from what it was in the past. But 
basically, we, uh, what I do is, is solve problems in the, in the brand world with creativity. And sometimes that's sort of helping companies or organizations discover who they are, I guess, like almost like an archaeologist, and then through a storytelling process, helping them figure out who they, who they um, can be. So yeah, and, and, and when you're doing something like that, it can be anything from doing it back in the day, like a TV commercial or um, any sort of piece of brand communication, whatever the problem is that needs to be solved, to actually creating a brand from the ground up and, or rebranding or, or helping create a new product or, any, or anything like that. It's a pretty wide range of things that I, that I do now along that spectrum, but primarily the, the, the focus is around um, a brand and how it shows up and communicates in the world. Yeah, so is it is it a little bit reductionist to call you like an ad executive or a marketing expert? Cuz it sounds a little more expansive than than those categories. Yeah, you know, I it's it's uh, I mean marketing isn't really my thing. It's kind of funny because there's a kind of a distinction between uh, I think between marketing and 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 branding and advertising. They tend to blur a lot. I I wouldn't call myself a marketing expert because a lot of the, the stuff, the, the levers that I pull or the pillars that I work with come from marketing people that have objectives and, and I have to sort of turn them into something that is uh, understood or, create or, or creative or sort of distilled into sort of an idea. So I'd say more, I'd focus more, I would say I would call myself a, um, a branding person on the creative side of things. So I'm a creative director and I think that, you know, I, I strategically informed I mean, my evolution is that I really like to solve problems and um, kind of make sure that what I'm doing is affecting the business, I guess. And, and that business could be a number of different things, not just numbers, but so. Yeah. I, I, think, I think I remember something on your website, one of your websites, it's something about beautiful problems. Uh, yeah. So what, what was yeah. the, what's the full saying there? You no. Know, I have a lot of weird, like little things that I've kind of created over time. But I, the, the things that I believe in, and and at the heart of any uh, remarkable solution is is a beautiful problem. And I, and I think that half of creativity is really making the problem better. You're given a problem, and you have to make that problem better. When you have a really good problem, the solution is something that just kind of falls out of that almost effortlessly because you spent that time sort of really kind of figuring out how to make that problem a little bit better. And that's just a sort of the a bit of, a, of this sort of strategic thinking behind any any great idea that I love actually so, so there's a bit of intelligence that kind of goes into that I think so what what do you mean by making a problem better what would be a really good example of that take it to the to a, so a slightly different level and because there's a because people will come in with something that's that it's a little bit more more general when they're asking you to do something and well, let, let, let me, let me uh, yeah. be, I'm be, trying to think of an example. Cause it's just like, it's funny. Cause it's just like, it's something that I, that I sort of do naturally, but it's a little bit harder to sort of describe what that is. Cause it's kind of a nuance in the, in that creative process. So I, I will think of it. Well, <laughs> we can come back to it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> l- let's talk about a couple of um, specific examples from your website and your portfolio. And I'll tell the listeners applieddaydreams.com is one of your websites and uh, jimhaven.com is the other. And jimhaven.com, uh, H-A-V-E-N.com, has a very impressive portfolio of just a sample of, of your prior work. But let's say, for example, Pacifico Beer comes to yeah. you today. And you know what is their problem? And how do you make that a better problem? 
because when, when I think about problems, I think of things that I don't want to have, you know, like if, yeah, yeah. take care of this. So how do you look at it differently? I look at a, a problem as a, as a, as simply a, a challenge, an objective, right? Okay. And so I guess it's, it's funny to think about it like that. But I was actually just in a meeting today when they were talking about it the same way they were talking about problems and they had to be very specific. Um, for, for Pacifico Beer, I, I think that the, you know, they came to us with a pretty specific task of trying to find a place for it within the, their own portfolio. Modelo is the same company that owns or distributes um, Corona. And that's obviously their big number one brand and they don't want to cannibalize it. And so I think finding a, a, a better problem in, in that instance was trying to find a story that was authentic to the beer, that was authentic to the story of the brand, that was authentic to the audience that they were going after. And I think that the quick solution is, oh, it's a, it's a Mexican beer, but the better problem is what kind of Mexican beer and for whom. In this instance, if originally sort of the original sort of distributors were just surfers and, and adventurers going down to Baja and bringing this up the coast and bringing it into California before it was, it was kind of legendary before it even got to the U.S. in some areas there. And so this is, it's interesting because every challenge is different. In this, in this instance, like you're, you, have, you have to protect one beer that you're not working on and finding a place for the other beer, right. but make them a family, right? So, so in this, if Corona was a vacation in a bottle, we looked at Pacifico as an adventure in a bottle. And so it was the beer for, you know, the dusty roads and off the beaten path people uh. that, you know, like to go after, like to find street food. And, and while they were okay, like hanging out by the pool, by ha- holding that beer versus the Corona, th- that was their way of sort of signaling to the world that I'm lounging now, but, you know, you can find me out looking for surf breaks or going on a hike somewhere or doing things that were a little bit more interesting, more authentic, finding a way to, to explore those places. So that's what that came about. And so it was, we, we, we were able to sort of define it by the, the activities and the perspective that um, we gave it. The better problem is finding that specific place for it to exist. Right. So, yeah, well, it certainly came through. And, and if um, my listeners go to the website, to jimhaven.com, and check out the Pacifico campaign, it's really impressive because you shot these commercials. I wouldn't call them commercials or whatever, sto- stories. Yeah, they're weird. They sort of, yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind <laughs> I guess, and I, yeah. I, hate to call, I hate to call them commercials because they're beautiful. It's okay. And yeah. they're, you know, I don't want them to diminish them in any way, but you have these Super 8 films. And for listeners that don't know what a Super 8 is, it's just an old video camera that has a very peculiar sort of dated look on it. And it's, it's really stunning to see when we're so used to high definition video these days, but it takes you back and, and it's sort of nostalgic for people who remember the Super 8 days. Um, so there's a little bit of nostalgia in there. And then you just get pulled into this story of these adventurous young people that are on these dusty roads, finding beaches that probably very few people have have ever been to, uh, looking for surf breaks, barbecuing on the beach. And it's, it is, it's definitely a different vibe than Corona with the the vacation vibe, totally different. And you guys nailed it. I don't know. I don't know where, how how you found that story, but I think it's one of the most impressive parts of your portfolio. Thank you. Yeah. We, you know, it was just really, uh, it was, like I said, it was about having conversations and figuring out what the origin story was. I think that sometimes when you look at brands that have been around for a while or anything, it's just, there's a, there's a bit of archeology 
that goes into it, you know, and, and, and digging through history and, and anthropology too, right? So you set yourself up for success when you figure those things out and are fascinated by them and are curious and want to serve it well and do the right thing and, and make it stand on its own and matter. And for that, you know, once we sort of figured that out, it was really, yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard to, <laughs> the, the Super 8 thing was just its own kind of weird world where I had discovered a, an old sort of at a garage sale, a, a, an old eight millimeter projector and just a stack of these amazing films from the 1940s to the 1950s of an adventurous family that traveled all around and took sailing trips and they recorded it, shot it all on this eight millimeter. I had found these, this eight millimeter film collection and a projector and I, and I bought it for like 20 bucks and I was so inspired by it. When the notion came up to, to go and try to make this brand a lo-fi brand, and we, we talked about it in, in terms of, you know, brought all the way from Mexico just to take you back and then defining that type of Mexico, I, w- I just felt like I wanted to feel like a home movie and I have all these great home movies that they feel so, so different and so nostalgic and makes you kind of want to be in that world. And I was like, this, we should try this out and see if we can pull this off. And, and we had to find all these, you know, comb through eBay and, and secondhand stores to, to find all these cameras that, that worked. And some of them were underwater cameras that we found from Germany and ended up buying about 10 of them. And tried to look for like a director and, and realized that we didn't necessarily need a director because the director might make them too perfect. And so we kind of worked on that. For a while on what the technique would be and how we would shoot it to, to make it really feel like a home movie and, and actually to kind of like bake in the mistakes that um, a normal person would probably do when, when filming and all the things that you that we loved but you know a filmmaker would never want the weird jump cuts and the lens flares and and all kinds of things that, that are just no-nos you know that we just kind of put in there to help it and make it feel like the adventure it was and and the other part of it, it was, it was pretty real because, you know, we got to go on these adventures and, you know, I spent, I can't tell you how many different trips and weeks and cruising through Mexico and, and, you know, having scouts go out and find these spots for us to go to was quite a thrill because then we got to actually go travel there. <laughs> you know, and yeah, some of them I, were really hard to get to, you know, really hard to get to. Yeah. I saw, <laughs> I saw some on your website, some pictures, some candidates of you with the super eight and you're, you know, squatting down, trying to get a good angle of the talent. I'm looking at one of them right now and says, because it hurts to go home. And I, uh, <laughs> at the, at the end of this silent movie where you're seeing all of these, these adventurous kids on these remote beaches in Mexico. And then at the end it says, because it hurts to go home. I was like, and that was one of the first pieces of work that I saw of yours when I was researching. Yeah. And, and my, my thought was that these stories that you tell really tap into something that is what you're, I think what you're finding is an emotional truth about a certain narrative. The reason I think it's emotional truth is because if it hits me emotionally and I'm, I'm like, damn, that almost brings tears to my eyes to, to watch this little, very efficient 30-second, 60-second story that you, you told. I think that's some of the most impressive storytelling out there. And that's why I wanted to, to have you on the show. I think that there is a um, underappreciated section of the storytelling community that do this type of work, and it's it starts with a deep dive, like you're saying, into finding out who this organization is, what are they all about, 
And so you're exploring and doing this archaeology and anthropology. How long do you typically spend with big clients like Starbucks or Amazon Prime, Pacifico? I know Pacifico is much smaller than uh, Amazon Prime, but really substantial, sometimes Fortune 500 clients that maybe they don't have anybody that really can tell you what they're all about and what their brand is because they don't know. So you're helping facilitate that. What does that process look like and how much time do you spend on that archaeology dig? Yeah, it can be a while actually, you know, and I, you know, I, I think it's just, by the way, everything is a partnership. I have, I'm nothing without the people I work with, right? So I have tons of smart, interesting people that, that I've worked with over the years. They just help make everything better and everything's a collaboration. And I, and I really think that's the essence of creativity to begin with. But for, for, for that type of process, I mean, it could be anywhere from, uh, depending on how much work and how much research they have and what they hand you, it can be something from a week to four weeks to six weeks. Some people will go a lot longer than that. I, I tend to think that you should be able to find that stuff a lot more quickly, unless you have to go out and do your own research. You know, I think it's like, I think two weeks is about all you really need to get that, get all the stuff you need and find those sort of immovable objects, I call them, sort of these truths. Because I think that everything is, uh, these good stories are made out of the truths that the brand are, are, are associated with, you know, and then the human truths that you discover, the combination of what they believe in and what, what people need in life and what they might be missing and what you might be able to sort of fulfill in the story, you know, that is involving the brand and creating this sort of relationship between the brand and the, and the audience. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a weird creative. I've always been super interested in that the upfront bit, that sort of strategic thinking. I'm not the most academic at it. And so I always relied on people and I always rely on people to help me that are more academic about sort of identifying some of those things and doing that, the, the research. But it's really about finding those, those sort of pillars and then um, looking for that, what I think is that beautiful problem. A beautiful problem to me is always, a, is always sort of a strategic question that is it's written in the, always written in the form of a question and then, that, and then creating this narrative as an answer to that question. I mean, that's, I guess, sort of oversimplifying it, but that's kind of what the process is like, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you ever find that you're getting resistance from the people that you're working with at the company, not your company, but mm -hmm. client's company? Because when I hire ad people, my instinct is, here you go, come back with, you know, whatever you, you're going to do. I don't want to have to spend time on this. You know, this, that's why I'm hiring mm -hmm. you to do it. That's not going to work with the type of approach that you take with these clients. Yeah. You know, the, it, they have to participate or it won't work. Because, you know, it depends on, and every client's different. I mean, these big giant companies have, and every problem is different. I mean, a lot of times I'm solving sort of bigger brand things, right? But sometimes you just have like a, a product that's within a brand, like an Amazon Prime Photos, whatever. There's a lot of people there that are, they're very busy, you know, and they do want you to kind of do as much as you can do. But there's certain things that you need to know in order yeah. to do your job. And I like to work in the um, ultraviolet and infrared spectrums. You know, I like to, to make sure that I'm, I'm doing more than is necessary because I think that's where the quality comes from right. you know, on any sort of given project, whether it's the, the, the work you do up front or the craft you put to it in the solution. Right. Um, 
Okay, so not to focus too much on your prior work and your your portfolio, but I think it's these are just great ways to launch into different topics because you have this. I mean, this this is just an incredible portfolio. But the Dickies branding that you did, I I thought was brilliant because there's this um this Dickies commercial that that you have on your website, and I don't think there's any narrator. I think it's just, you know, a series of very quick clips of someone's day and, you know, them yeah. put, putting on these pants and they're, this is what they're doing in these pants. And at the end of this very short, but succinct commercial, you have a vivid visceral understanding of exactly, you know, how people working people use these pants and how they fit mm-hmm. into their lifestyle. And I was like, yeah. holy crap, that is so, I, I just don't see commercials like that very often. And I, and I wonder, you know, probably because my guess is that creatives like you are few and far between and, and you're operating just at, at a different level. Um, so you're not seeing, I mean, I really look at these as like Super Bowl level sort of um, approaches to, you know, storytelling for clients. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, I, Brian, I don't think it's, it's necessarily me being better than anyone else. It's I think that the the funny thing about uh, doing a, a TV commercial is that you know, I hate to say it, but clients get the work they deserve or the work they want. I mean, you do have to push sometimes to get the get it the right way because not everyone wants to do something that is simple and powerful like that. I mean, that the funny you you called it out on the right point there. It's like I mean that was that story was a basically a day in the life of pants, you know, right? <laughs> and 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 it was shot through the perspective of the pants, which is kind of interesting, but also there's, you know, that the story that's not in, that's not told there that helps create that is there's also other constraints that, that show up. And, and in that instance, it was, you know, one of them was budget. So how do you make something really good when you don't have a lot of money and you need to tell this, this story? But I think that, I don't think that those constraints are, I think constraints create creativity actually. So, uh, you know, when, when it's, when everything's wide open, and you don't have these things you have to work around, I think you start to make choices that I, 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 say, I don't think you make as, as good of choices, I think, sometimes. And if you, if you have too much money on you know, a, a big budget spot or you have um, you know, a different type of client that really just wants to overdo it and hammer it into people's heads and, and tell them things that, you know, about the quality of the pants or the, you know, like people understand those things if you can tell that story in the right way. And, and you have to have respect for the, the consumer. Right. Um, so there's a bit of a discipline that, that goes into to all those things and helps make that, those, yeah. those, those things happen. So that makes they sense. Yeah. They're not, I mean, they don't happen all the time. It's always just all the things have to be kind of in the right place. You have to be at your best and all the people you work with have to be at their best and the client has to be at their best. So um, and, and the client yeah. probably has to be open to something pretty unconventional. Yeah. 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 In, in the instance of that, it was really that, that was that, that client was a really challenging client that, um, and, and not the, the individual that sort of that commissioned that, but just the whole company was a, was, was a big challenge. And, and I think that this was one really nice piece that we all kind of were able to do that made everything else, all the tough parts work out for us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another, um, account or piece of your portfolio I'd like to talk about is Jansport. 
and the reason I want to bring that up is that I, I think the band that was involved in that commercial, and, and just to describe it for listeners, there's like a sort of a um, impromptu concert out in the woods with this bus yeah. of young people, and the band is the Cave Singers, right? Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, just yeah. a coincidence because cool. I uh, I was doing I, I do a recap episode with my producer and editor Jason after every interview. And so uh, during these recaps, we talk about, uh, you know, what books are you reading? What music are you listening to? That type of thing. And, and just a couple of days ago, we, we recorded a recap and he said, what music are you listening to? I said, cave singers. And uh, that's funny. And it's so yeah. strange because I had not seen that commercial yet that you shot. And so that band though, is I think so underappreciated. I don't think they're commercially successful really i mean they they tour and they do really well on tour. oh yeah they were kind of in that moment then you know and they could you could go either way right at that right. time yeah but what a great vibe to have for that commercial just really um, minimalist band great lyrics and good musicians but you can't even really define what they are are they folk are they rock you know what what are they but they they were it was so fun to see them as part of that commercial yeah, I wonder what that genre is now. I mean, there's kind of that, it definitely has a folk angle to it. Yeah. Um, how, how did you find them? The great thing is that, that you work around a bunch of people that are listening to things and, and having conversations. And somebody, I think that, that you know, I, I, it's, it's good. I have to kind of go back in the Wayback Machine to kind of figure that one out. I don't, I don't remember how we found them precisely. You know, I, I think I was there was definitely a lot of people around that were at the company that were listening to, to music and trying to, we had this idea to um, do this secret concert. And because it's like part of this, it, one of the cool things that we were doing at the time where we, we were creating these experiences that would allow us to, I, I have this idea, like I, whenever you can, you try to make the, the, the consumer, the protagonist in the story to really involve them and, and give them some an experience. Right that they yeah. can share. And then at the same time, we get to film it and use all that footage and f- for the purposes that we, that we want and the brand needs at the time. And so, yeah, I, you know, it was just, I think it was just looking for the right kind of band that, that had enough of a following. I mean, that thing, what, what, we kind of leaked that out and there was a long line for people that it was a free concert that n- n- I don't think anyone knew who they were going to see until the last minute. Yeah. So it was just this, just the right band at the right time, I guess. Seattle has so many great musicians and there's a real wealth of um, potential you know, of people you get to work with. So those, those kids or young people in their teens and twenties uh, that showed up, there were just people that wanted to see a free concert. They weren't actors or yeah. extras or whatever. No, 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 no. Yeah. They just showed up. That was all real. They loved it. I mean, and so many people wanted to go and as many people from the, from the agency got to go too, as they as you know, and, and I think it created a lot of love for the brand and, and you know, brings people together. It's just, a, it's just a cool, cool thing to do. So just a couple more parts of your portfolio that I can't mm-hmm. not talk about. So Gates Notes. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to, you're asking. Yeah. How, how yeah. did that account, how did you get that account and what was the process of? Oh, man, finding, you know, it's cool because I've never spoken about this because when it was going on, you know, we couldn't really talk about it. So somehow, somehow we knew uh, just kind of over time, there was a, the, uh, the chief of staff of, of, of Bill Gates 
we knew him from sort of some Microsoft, Microsoft days and just sort of, you know, some relationships. And um, he called us one day and said, you know, Bill is doing his thing outside of the, the foundation and he wants to kind of go online and, and, and put his opinions out there. And we want to w- figure out a way we can sort of, you know, capture this and, and create this, this website that, it, you know, and, and how, how do we, and like, you know, just kind of figure out how we, what kind of things we're going to talk about. I mean, he has all these initiatives and all these ideas. Um, and um, how do we, how do we capture that? So um, we, I, it was just kind of lucky. You just get that phone call and you can't believe it. You know, <laughs> you know I, don't, I don't know what the process was like. We, we just, I just remember when we got that phone call, we, we, we met with, met with them and they were like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. And so then it, we kind of called it, I think a blogumentary at the time. Cause it wasn't like a, just a blog and it wasn't like a, it was like just trying to figure out how we're going to take his ideas and, and put them out there. And how we kind of figure out the, the ways to sort of box up the content and box up his, his, his thinking. I, just the other yeah. day, I mean, I, it, another coincidence, I mean, Cave Singers was kind of a confluence of, of uh, ideas and, and uh, coincidental or not. But then, then there's Gates Notes. And I remember, and I don't post too many uh, political things on Facebook. I try not to. But, you know, Bill Gates uh, wrote a pretty bold blog post about the tax system. And mm-hmm. his ba- basically, he thinks that rich people need to be taxed at a higher rate. And mm-hmm. um, he had very, he laid out a very non-emotional, logical reason why. And uh, and I posted mm-hmm. from his Gates notes. I posted it on on my Facebook page. And and uh, here I am a week later, uh, talking to the person who helped him uh, create that that blog yeah we got to name it too and it's kind of fun you know and and all the different sort of iterations of what we, of what it was yeah it's cool yeah i just have so much respect for him and and so it was just an honor you know so when you get to work with really smart people like i mean there's nothing i like better than smart people and it's intimidating to work with really smart people um, but the great thing about 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 working with bill is that he knew he knew a lot of stuff i mean i mean you know just about everything but there's, but there's lot, but there's things he doesn't know. And he asks just questions about it, like just like a regular person. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's just kind of, it was fun to, to talk to him about that, you know, just kind of packaging yeah. up these things. Well, you Coming up think, with the, yeah. the curious classroom was like one area we looked into and, um, you know, how we sort of, you know, come up with these ideas of, you know, it, it, was, it was a lot of, the, he, sometimes he, you know, he would come with stuff like I want to, you know, do my book list and I want to, you know, do this and do that and then we would sort of try to package it up in a way that made it compelling and um, um, did that for about a year and a half or two years before they kind of took it back uh, took it inside took it in house and created their own sort of machine which is I think the, the way to do it anyways yeah um, yeah and, create, uh, create the infrastructure for them and, and empower yeah. them to, to do it on their own um, you know, yeah a funny thing happened out of that though the, um, that you might like um, so in that process of, of working with them, they, um, Larry, Larry Cohen was the, the, um, was the CEO there of, of uh, BGC3, um, is what they call it. He said, hey, um, weird, weird, qu- weird question. Can you help us out? Bono is having a 50th birthday party. And, and <laughs> Bill and Melinda want to um, give them a really special gift. And um, they want to create something that, that embodies the work he did with, if you can believe it, with George Bush and the 
political work he did to get the debt removed in Africa. Oh my goodness. And, and we want to honor him for that. Can you come up with some ideas as to how we would do that? And so we were hired to create a birthday present for Bono. Oh my goodness. Um, for his 50th. And so um, no pressure, we got to no just pressure. conceptualize it. No, no, it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. So we got to sit there just like we were doing any other project and kind of conceptualize a, 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 a sort of a representation of, of this experience. And, and they, what they ended up buying was a, a sort of a um, kind of a collage in the shape of Africa that, that had a bunch of his uh, music on there and record albums and, and music sheets. And then we had the weird part was we had to go fly around the country and photograph all of these people that were involved. And they were all the most like, like the people that from the evil empire of the, of the, you know, oh my <laughs> time, you know, <laughs> so we had to go, you know, and, 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 and photograph um, all these people from the Republican party, from the, from the, the Bush administration that. That's crazy. It's that really that, that kind of, kind of were joking you know, about it, about the fact that they, they knew it was weird. Cause like, I think that, that that's one of the great things that, that that president did. And he didn't really talk about it. Cause it didn't really, it wasn't really party line. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, George Bush is remembered for a lot of terrible things and, and, and rightfully so not to get too political here, but yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think that, that Bill Gates is one of those people that has always been a bipartisan guy and really hard to pin down too politically. I don't, I don't know that he would ever even offer opinions on candidates at any point. Probably because, you know, he's a shareholder of a huge corporation that's sort of at the whim of whoever's at the helm of the government. But he, um, but he does tend to be the type of person to bring uh, strange bedfellows together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and that sounds like what he did with Bono and George Bush. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he had that thing and they, they presented it to him in, uh, in London. And I happened to be there at the time. I didn't get, I mean, obviously I wasn't invited to that, <laughs> but, but right. I, was, I was, I was outside of the hotel when, and <laughs> it was kind of funny just randomly. Cause I, cause I caught up with, uh, with, uh, with Larry there and, and had, we had a, uh, had a pint and, and talked about it. Um, I've heard, I, I heard at some point, like, like, uh, you know, five, six years later that it was actually still hanging in his house. Oh, nice. House, so. Oh, that's yeah. great. What a testament to the thoughtfulness of the gift. Well done. Well, I guess, you know, he, you know, it was, yeah, I guess it's who it comes, who it comes from rather than really what it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you get a present from, you know, a present from uh, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, you're probably like, yeah, this is cool. Yeah. Like, why is it so ugly? I don't know, but it's cool. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it took a team of a hundred people, six months <laughs> to, to put this together. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. So um, yeah. A, a couple more parts of people can go to your website. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but one thing I, I have to ask you about is the, the 2012 Venezuelan elections. Was it 2012? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this. That's a weird story. Yeah. You know, like, I, how I do you get pulled you, into that? You find all these things, you're finding all these things. Um, I, you know, the, the, the story of that is just really weird to me and, and just cool because I think that sometimes there's just people that, that see something that other people don't. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that, that my work has ever been incredibly popular. I think it hits some people in the right way. 
you know, and, and the things that you're pointing out are really fun, are cool to me because those are the things that I actually admire or, 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 or love to create, you know, and, and love in other people's work when I see it. That was it. The, you know, we, the Pacifico work, there was a big New York Times article about the work. And then I get a phone call from some guy in D.C. And he's running a public affairs um, company. And he's like, hey, I, I want to talk to you. I saw you working in Pacifico in the New York Times. And I have a project that's a bit strange. You might not be into it. Or you might be. And let me tell you about it. And I, I just, it's, it's the Venezuelan elections. And, and the, um, you know, we think we have a chance with the opposition party to, to make some headway versus uh, Chavez. And uh, he said, do you know anything about Venezuelan politics? <laughs> and I said, this may sound strange, but yes, I do. I've actually been following it for quite a few years. Really? <laughs> I had just, it was just one of my, so I, 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 took, a, I took a trip um, randomly. I don't know what year it was. It was a million years ago, but I needed a quick vacation to a warm place. Everything, it was last minute. Everything was really expensive. I found a cheap flight to Venezuela and took it and explored it just happened to be at the very moment, like it, there was some political unrest going on there. It was, it was when the transition was actually happening between the, the previous administration and Chavez being elected. He was one, you know, a big election. And it was, a, it was, um, it was he was the man of the people, right? So I wasn't, I was going to cancel my trip because apparently if, if he would not have been elected, it would have been a dangerous place to travel. And, and, and uh, it was okay. So I went down and explored, but, but it stuck in my mind. I was like, I'm going to follow this from now on because I kind of, was interested in, in that you traveled somewhere and, you know, you, you notice things about it. You like the food, sure. you look for the food, you do all that stuff, right? I, I happen to also follow the political story because of, of it, was a, it was noteworthy at the time to me. So I get this phone call. I was like, yeah, I, I've been following it. And, and in, the, in the meantime, Chavez has, has become a terrible leader. <laughs> I mean, and, and has <laughs> it's an understatement. Crazy talent thing. Just crazy, crazy. Like, like just the most insane things. Just this socialist behavior that was that you know i think his heart was in the right place but he was just like just a nutcase right so the um and maybe his heart actually wasn't in the right place if you you know his daughters you know I, the guy was a you know a, like a general and and came from nothing and suddenly he has daughters that are you know he's passed away since but his daughters are flying around the world and they're, and they're billionaires so not sure how that happens but <laughs> um <clears throat> but i think we know anyway so i get this phone call and and i'm like yeah i know i know some stuff about the that everything that's going on. And I'd be completely interested in, in, in trying to figure out how to help out. But why, why are you calling me? And he's like, you know, because you do weird things and we cannot be conventional. Um, Chavez controls all of the media. He controls all of the ch channels of communication. We have to rethink everything and we have to find a different way to do it. And if you're willing to, we think that it would be a good, a good try. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. And, and his, his conclusion about how you do things differently uh, was based upon the Pacifico campaign? That's where it started. And then he looked at some other things that I had done. Yeah. And that we had been doing and, and thought that we had an unconventional approach. And um, that was what he was looking for. I don't know. Maybe something just hit, something struck him, I guess. Yeah, I still know the guy. He's a, he's a friend of mine now. He's, he is literally the most interesting man in the world. 
But um, <laughs> yeah, guy's just crazy cool. Actually, has a, a new restaurant. He has he's had a lot of restaurants in addition to everything else. He also has like a kibbutz and 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 you know in Israel and you know, has a goat farm and and has a new uh, restaurant called Immigrant Food in DC. Yeah, you should check it out. Look it up. You know, they're they're trying to sort of tell the story of of why immigration um, brings culture to America and its and its significance. So he's actually created a restaurant called Immigrant Food. Nice. Um, so, um, anyways, he um, yeah, you should interview that guy. It'll be it'll be like a two hour podcast. <laughs> Hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. Um, so. Yeah, so so it became a, it was kind of fun because we got to it was a little bit of a of a tense thing. We had to it was totally hush hush, of course, and we had to go you know fly down to Miami for meetings. We we go into one hotel and we go out the back door and walk into another hotel, and we had sort of this encrypted email that we would we would use. But it was a really fun problem to solve because you had to really unbox everything and kind of think about well well how do you Tell them, like, first of all, what's the message we need to tell? And, 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 and then we're dealing in Venezuela, like Venezuelan people. We, had to, we figured out that, that at the end of the day, Venezuelans were just like anybody else. That's when you make that, that the beautiful problem in that instance is actually figuring out that you have to go to the, to the next level of humanity. You know, you have to go below what, what separates us culturally and even what may separate us politically and, and find what actually unites us. And, mm-hmm. and what are the themes that we can talk about the United States? And we had two different ways to approach it. One was a bit, the, the one that we, we had to figure out, what can we do that, that he cannot affect? That is, that's a message that works for us all. And, and in that instance, one of the things we discovered was that, that, that when you vote in Venezuela, you put your thumbprint down. And, and that scares people, makes people not want to vote. Because, you know, and it works both ways, by the way. It's like, hey, what, what happens if, if I'm a, Chavanista and 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 um, the other guy gets elected and they trace my thumb and they know I voted for for the other guy and then I lose my job because they have a government job or whatever or you know both worked both ways so there was fear on both sides of of, of party lines and and um, the um, figuring out that that we needed to sort of just encourage people we called it you know to speak your mind with your thumbs was the idea and that's that's a message that that. Is, is bipartisan, right? It doesn't really matter what you believe other than that you have a right to speak your mind and you should and to encourage everyone to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, the point being that a dictator, a socialist dictator is never going to say that. Right. You, everyone knows it's not coming from him, but at the same time, he cannot disrupt that message because it's on the street and it's an experience. And then we made films out of it too and TV commercials, but he couldn't affect it because if he was affecting it, he would look like, well, he would look like who he is. Yeah. You know, someone that was, someone, or he was, someone that was controlling everything, controlling the message. And, and so we were, you know, the other idea that we actually didn't execute that I liked even more was like putting soccer balls with messages and, and just dropping them into the villages where, you know, he would be forced to have his people go into the village and steal balls from children. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> you know? So you're looking at ways to basically, you know, get your message out there and, and, and find ways to, that are unconventional to do that. And so that, you know, that, that just takes kind of bespoke thinking and that's the kind of stuff I like doing. Um, and, and like I said, it's like, you know, good ideas like that and, and are um, really don't, don't the, the culture isn't, if you understand what the culture enough is, you have to go, you can get below that level and find out what sort of, what is sort of a human response. Right. So we yeah. did that. And then the other side of it was just 
we had a little, we poked a little fun of him and, and just took his policies and turned them into, it was a kind of a separate campaign that went to a different audience. Um, that was just kind of fanning the, 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 you know, fueling the fires, I guess. And Oh, and the, just, the cartoons, right? Yeah. The cartoons. Yeah. Cause we just looked at them and it was just like, everything this guy does like is like a cartoon. It's like, it doesn't like, if you took his policies and animate them, it feels like it's a, like it's a cartoon. It's, it's that silly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, you know, trading oil for, for corn, you know, it was one of his policies. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> oh, we have a lot of oil, you know? So like, and, and, um, you know, the murder rates were going crazy and, and, and it's not something you want to make fun of, but, but, you know, we did it in, in a way that was trying to be lighthearted, I think, you know, because it was just supposed to be that, that, that side of that campaign was, you know, got shut down pretty quickly. And, and, and the whole point was to kind of make it as viral as we could and try to keep him from, you know, keep them from, and the internet wasn't as easy to control, I think, and harder to sort of, for him to censor. So, you know, that was just having a little bit of fun with yeah. it. Well, I mean, it sounds yeah. almost like guerrilla warfare of ideas. Yeah. You're, you're, you're yeah. Dro- dropping in like a, like a military commando with a, a mission of, you know, not a military mission, but one to empower people that feel, well, it's really it's like it's trying to counter a voter suppression tactic yeah the, the fact is that that you wouldn't have to be like that if you were if that if it was a world of of um of of equals right yeah so you know we had to we that was a, just an additional factor and, and what actually is what made it more interesting to me and i you know i i won't work on things that i don't believe in I was educated enough and got more intel and had to find out more and get more evidence, you know, before we engaged in this, that it was something that we really wanted to do and, and was it worth the risk and all of those things. And I thought it was, you know, because I'd been down there and I had kind of developed a love for the Venezuelan people and the culture, right. And to see what they were going through, I think was, it was affected me, you know, and the fact that I got the, I got a chance to do something about it was real, was real honor. And, and, and shows, I think, that, that I think the power of creativity and, and, and figuring out stories and is, is really interesting to me. And, and it can do a lot more than sell products. And I think you can do, there's a lot of things that, that you know, these, looking at these narratives and how you can sort of shift perceptions and, and tell stories over time that, that, are, that, are, that are important. But at the same time, there's a, there's a, a seriousness to it that, that I never really understood. When I was in ad school down in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the teachers gave this big speech at the end of some quarter. And I remember, and it seemed really dramatic to me, but he said, careful with you know, the words you write because they matter and they can, they, they're powerful and they can affect people. And just understand that, that you know, how, how you choose to wield them needs to be done you know, in, in the right, with the right knowledge of what you're, capable of doing and what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, he didn't say anything more than that. And I never, I was kind of thought that was like, well, that's overdoing it. We're making ads. That's silly. <laughs> you know, well, whatever. I, 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 think- but I, did, but I came to realize later in life that, that, you know, that, that he was, he was correct. And now probably more than ever we see this and, and, you know, so. Um, well, yeah. it, I think what, what I'm seeing is um, that, the power of the storytelling that that you are involved in uh, is it can be used for good and it can be used for evil, and and that sounds a little bit 
uh, cliche to say, but I think it's true, especially in the age of uh, the post-truth era that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if you can use propaganda, you know, I think there's a, there's a fine line sometimes between propaganda and storytelling that is designed mm-hmm. to re- to reveal universal truths. And everything that I've seen you do, even in the Venezuelan campaign, is designed to reveal, um, you know, a, a universal human narrative uh, that people can. Yeah. With, you know. Well, thank you. But, you know, so it's kind of funny. So on the on the one the campaign that was the cartoon one, that's you know, that's when it gets. That's when you know humor was in, was okay. Humor was involved because it it was that felt right. You know, you we're not trying to force people to, to believe that aren't believers. And that's like, you know, and then the other, and the other side of that being the, um, the fingerprints, it was just like a human truth. Right. So yeah. I, I, I don't want to tell, st- I, I can't work with anything but the truth. I have to, you know, that's one of the pillars I work with. It's one of the immovable objects in terms of how I like to communicate. It's just whether, whether or not it's like, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's me being noble. It's just the only way I know how to do it. It's, it's one of the tools. It's one of the levers that I use. And, and so, you know, there's always, you know, questions about what is that, but, but I, I think that those, and I've never been involved in anything, anything where I, I couldn't see pretty clearly what needed to be said or what the, you know, the, the truth was. And I, I've never, um, worked on anything where someone's trying to get me to 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 um, tell us tell a story or, or or bring a value about that isn't truthful, you know. Right. But I wouldn't be. I don't think I'd be able to do it. Um, I know I wouldn't be able to do it because if I don't because I don't believe in it, and 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 if I my system has always been to use these, put these these I manuf- you know create these stories out of those things, it just wouldn't work for me, you know. Just I wouldn't actually know how. So it sounds like, yeah. How many years did you spend at, at Goodby Silverstein? Um, four years. That place was amazing, man. Was that down I in mean, San Francisco? I mean, smart people. Yeah. 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 I mean, just, I, so you, I, you know, I, I went to university of Puget Sound, a lot of smart people at university of Puget Sound. It's cool. Right. It's good yeah. school. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't one of the smart guys. I was just there. <laughs> I didn't really know what I wanted to do until kind of later. Right. So, and then, um, and then when I went, got, was I, when I was hired at, at, at Goodby, first of all, I was flattered because at the time they were one of the best agencies in the world. And actually they, they won agency of the year this year. So they've kind of, they're back. They've come back, you know, stronger than ever. Um, and um, I just remember the talent in that, that building. And I, real, I knew right away that, that, that just, they were just forces of nature all through that of every capacity in the, of, of every department from the people that ran the accounts to the, the, the strategists and, and then the creatives. And, you know, I, I was like, Whoa, I do not belong here, but I want to be here. You know, <laughs> I, I want to learn as much as I possibly can. And, um, and it was, it was a great experience for me to, to be around that, to learn, to, to try to learn the, the way they do the things, the way they did it. And then to, to unlearn it later when I got to do my own thing, use the parts that were necessary, but then find what, what my own way of doing things would be. Um, you know, because they, I, I wasn't actually capable of doing consistently doing that kind of work. I, I mean, it, I did it, but it wasn't my natural state. 
Um, and I really, but I really enjoyed it. And the opportunities I had were incredible. And the friendships I created and, uh, you know, still yeah. to this day, I mean, the people, the people that were there that, that at that time all ended, all sort of are incredible um, talents and leaders all over the place now. So, so, like you, a, so, yeah, so you, it's like a machine. So you spent um, uh, four, four years there. And is that when you started Strawberry Frog? Oh, right after that. Yeah. Yeah. Right after I went over to, I went over to Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, and I just had this, I, I just, you know how things work. It's so weird in life. I just remember thinking at, at age, whatever I was 30, that, um, 31 or something like that, 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 well, this is it. You know, um, I always wanted to go work in Europe and I guess I'm never going to get there. And, you know, I guess I just have to lock down and, 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 do my thing. And then that opportunity showed up suddenly to go over to Amsterdam and work at this weird company. Um, and uh, I happened to be someone that, that, that I, that I worked with that could be that had left just kind of travel the world and ended up there and, and, you know, was able to convince them to bring me over. <clears throat> so, um, so that's what I did. And just, man, that was, that was lucky. I mean, I didn't want to leave that great agency, but at the same time, you know, life was calling me in a, in a slightly different direction. Amsterdam. So, I mean, how many opportunities yeah. do you get to, to move to and, and work in such a cool uh, part of the world? Yeah, it wasn't, didn't, it, it was not lost on me for one single second. I can tell you, you know, in that, in that, in that moment, although it was sometimes it, the things that made it charming and cool or the things that made it annoying, you know, like, you know, you, you, the only way around is on a bike and it's when it's snowing, you know, <laughs> and right. it's night and you're trying to go out to dinner and just free and you, you finish your dinner and you want to have to realize you have to get back on your bike in the snow and ride yeah. for a bunch of miles. It's just like, that's not super fun, <laughs> but you know, whatever. It's like, you're in Amsterdam. You, 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 once you get used to it, you look around and go, yep, but I'm in Amsterdam and look how beautiful everything is and how cool everything is. And, um, and how so, weird. And so why, why isn't Amsterdam? it great to be around weird things? But, but why um, Amsterdam? That's where the, so um, that's where the company was. So I went to work for uh, uh, an agency there that was called Strawberry Frog. And, but but um, was, there, was there people like native uh, folks from, from Amsterdam who started the company there, there or did they decide? Yeah, to yeah there was a bunch there? of, there was, it was, a, it was, a, it was um, a couple Canadians and a, and a, and a and a Swedish woman and a Dutch, some Dutch people. Yeah. Wow. And, um, they were just doing that. And at the time, and it's kind of, it's probably going to swing back this way, actually. Um, at the time there was this sort of weird moment happening where a lot of the big U S brands were establishing their headquarters in Amsterdam. Some of them are still there. Like, so, um, like Nike has a, is a, their European headquarters is there and you know, Adidas has a big operation and, um, Starbucks, I don't, I, I, they, they're there. I don't know if that was the main thing. I, I, I don't think they're, they're bigger in, in London now, but okay. they had a major operation there. So um, there was a lot of brands setting up their, their European headquarters there. The Dutch, hmm. you, know, are, are, you know, they don't have natural resources, so they've figured out other ways to, to be savvy and smart and, and create a, you know, um, a thriving economy. Um, and so they created an environment where, where, you know, the sort of 
pan-European business. It was also the, at, at a time, you know, when like the Netherlands has this sort of cool neutrality to it where, you know, it's not like anybody has a problem with anybody, anybody else. Um, and, and, and certainly when the, you know, the European Union, you know, made that even less so, but there was a kind of a cool thing where, where um, they had this ability to do these sort of pan-European campaigns out of the Netherlands and, you know, it was, it, it was just kind of went over a little bit better, I think, at that time. That was kind of one of the thoughts, at least. It was one of the dialogue, one of the sort of conversations that was sort of being had at the time. So, yeah, there was just this moment then where that was, where that was happening. And I kind of think it's, it's happening again. Brexit isn't making it any, any easier to do business in the UK and have your, you know, your European EMEA headquarters um, there, so... Yeah. Why not go to the, why not, you know, shift to Amsterdam? I mean, there's already a big presence there. So I, I, we'll see what happens, but yeah. And it was just, it was a cool environment too, because they, they, um, I, that's where I saw things that, that I was experimenting with in my, in my own sort of style of, of doing advertising and communicating and solving problems that they were actually doing. They were actually executing. I mean, I would go, I mean, as much as I loved good Silverstein, I would go and present sometimes these like they go, okay, like you get an assignment. It was like, okay, you need to do a TV campaign and maybe some billboards to go with it. You know, it's kind of how they you did it back then, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then I would do that and I go, but then I have these weird ideas too. How about, you know, we do this experience, we do this, or we, and, and they would go, yeah, that's, that's whatever. It's not, it's not, they don't need that. It's not what they're asking for. Like, okay, whatever. And I kept trying to do it. I would always throw in these sort of extra ideas, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, because I, I just, I think that I had read a story a long time ago about, uh, before I even got into advertising, I think about some guy that was doing crazy, trying to solve problems with, you know, crazy, I guess, guerrilla marketing sort of tactic, tactics. And I thought that, that was kind of cool. Um, so in Amsterdam, they were doing that already. Yeah. It was actually happening. Partially it was because of budget and partially it was because of, you know, the, the, sort of condensed um, environment of Europe, the ability to reach, you know, more people in, in strange ways and to create these sort of things that create, uh, create ideas that, that create natural conversation. So they were kind of ahead of their time there. And, and so I was like, whoa, this is my place. You know, I get to do that, that stuff here. Um, and, and when I left Amsterdam, I had the op- when I had the opportunity to start my company, I took that with me and that became the basis for everything was to, to, never have to try to never have a, uh, come in with a, a, um, a tactical solution. Yeah. Know? And that was creature. Always to try to say when, yeah, yeah. So when, so when someone would come in and say, we need to solve this problem, uh, you know, it, instead of saying we need a TV spot, we need, you know, I, I would always try to back them up, you know, say you need a solution. And it might involve a TV spot, but let's try to figure out what the problem is, what the story is. And maybe there's something that organically comes up that's better than all of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, a, a perfect example, there was, you heard of this company called Burgerville? It's sort of a, oh, yeah. a, an old established sort of Portland company. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my, my first clients back in Seattle after I started my company. And they, they, you know, said, hey, our billboards are, are, are we ran out of the billboards. We need to, the, the, you know, put up new creative and so we need you to make a billboard to, um, for our, our, our shakes and um, just couple and it just like looked at it and I was like I don't I don't, I don't think that you're going to 
get what you need from, it was just some sort of weird situation where they only had a, up for a certain number of weeks and only like one location or something, but they were you know, sort of kind of insisting that we, we try that. And I said, you know what, um, let's not do that. I'll give you this idea. I'll show you, I'll, I'll give you what you're asking for, but let me show you what you really need instead. And, and um, there was a, happened to be like a Shakespeare festival going on at the same time. And so I said, why don't we create a play um, and um, across from it called Shakes in the Park. And we'll, <laughs> we'll basically do the same Shakespeare play that they're doing on the other side of the park, but we'll, we'll involve Shakes because if Shakespeare, if Burgerville would have been around when, when Shakespeare was alive, clearly, you know, he wrote about themes of, you know, love and, and, and death and betrayal. He would definitely write about these shakes because they were so delicious, you know, that would be another one of his themes. So it's clearly he would have, you know, you can make that leap. So that's what we did. And, and, and um, it sort of outdrew the, um, <laughs> the actual, it's sort of getting people from the other side to come over because it was slightly more, more interesting. I mean, I love Shakespeare, um, his sonnets and think he's like, Obviously, it was a great, one of the greatest writers of all time, and it just blows me away when I when I see the wit in his work. But but let's be honest, some of those plays are really hard to follow and kind of boring. So he mm -hmm. put a little comedy in it, some shakes. It got to be pretty fun. Oh man! And uh, yeah, hired like an improv group, an improv troupe to to put it together. Yeah, yeah. and so, so that's kind of an, I think that's an example of of you know in that particular situation, just coming up with like the like. The standard solution we could have done that but i yeah. didn't think it i don't think it's helpful like i don't think it would yeah. have gotten them anything they right. spent some money and it sounds know? like um it sounds like goodby silverstein probably would have taken that billboard instruction and and yeah they would have done it just executed absolutely yeah absolutely now, the times have changed no one does that anymore now everyone starts to think about you know the, the things you know if you're at an agency like goodby that's there well known for solving their problems creatively with great strategy you know they, they're going to go in and, and unpack everything and really look at the right way to do it um they they have such a big scale with a lot of the clients that it will almost always involve some sort of film piece but not always you know there's now it's really about sort of these bespoke experiences that that, that do the same thing that, that help communicate what needs to be communicated and that's a big shift along with the sort of the advent of of you know the, a lot of the heavy lifting now is done by sort of digital stuff digital work and, and, um, and understanding, you know, how to, how to target all these, you know, people. I, right. I think that at the end, it's, it's harder to really build a brand and, and, and create a story that, that way. There's, there has to be some sort of, the, 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 uh, the future is this combination of those two things, I think, you know, that's so the way it works best. My, my understanding, looking at your, um, your CV or your, um, your website that kind of talks about your, work history is when you started creatures mm -hmm. it started in seattle and you had three people right yeah mm -hmm. and and then it expanded to 85 people with a london office mm -hmm. yeah uh, so what tell tell me what you tried to do running a company like that to make it um a different place to work so that creativity was nurtured and cultivated um, but also it was unique and fun because i'm looking at some of the things you did on your website and and i want you to describe that to the listeners 
Um, well, I mean, I have to say that, that, that it, it went too far, to be honest with you. It was, it was probably more, it was probably, we were probably better at being um, creative and, and um, our love for creativity and making things and, and doing absurd things was, was um, I think, attractive to lots of people and, and um, probably more appreciated by the people that worked there than our clients. <laughs> um, so, so, um, you know, it, in, in that regard, you know, mistakes, mistakes were made. It was my own sort of, my, my own sort of passion for, for wanting to, to make things and, and to sort of express creativity and, and, and foster an environment where people could, um, do great things, um, and, and, and make great work for our clients, but also make work for themselves and, and, and involve all of the, the, the great minds that were there. I mean, I think that the, the people there, I'm just super proud of the people that I got to work with. Um, they were, they were, all of them, you know, you always try to find people that are more talented than you are. And I was able to find a lot of them. I mean, that's not, I mean, I guess the bar isn't that high, but still, I mean, I, I, they, I, I was also, I think, able to, to sort of create an environment where they were, to become, can become better or their best, you know? Um, and I was really proud of that too. So, so yeah, but we, we did, we did, you know, we had a space that was super creative and we had people that, that were naturally wanting to do that, those types of things. And then we just come up with weird ideas on our own that we wanted to make. Sometimes they were ideas we couldn't sell to a client. So, um, we'd make them ourselves. And then sometimes they were just like, we had, uh, the storefront windows that because it was a space that was uh you know how uh, the, the entrance was ground level and these we had these windows that we turned into um um just showcases of sort of um ideas and, and art and thematic art projects um sometimes they were pretty extensive um and and different people you know would would get a chance to make them and um they'd come and you know show them to me and we talk about them and that's like, yeah, go do that. That's great. And then we, you know, fund it a little bit as necessary and, you know, let it come to life. You know, and they, they, well, sometimes there were weird things. Like we, we gave people, we had a barber's chair and we gave people haircuts for free haircuts in the window. Um, <laughs> in the storefront you know. window. Yeah. 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 People would line up and get their free haircut. And uh, yeah, it was just like a, like a, you know, weird thing. Um, but, but, but fun. And I um, see something about a speakeasy too, a, a basement. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, there was a, yeah, there was a vault in the, in the, uh, an old vault in the basement. And, um, we, I, I looked at it immediately and, and I was like, oh, we need to turn this into a bar. Um, so, you know, I, you know, had that, that, that was the brief basically. I didn't, I didn't, I, one of my designers said, Hey, I, I was like, do you want to, turn this into something it's like yeah and so that was you know that was kind of a, a project for one of the, for the creative department and they was led by this guy um chris campbell um who's still here in seattle at, at, at publicist as a creative director and man that guy's just so many great he's just a genius and um he he turned it into the safe house and um and it was just the, the idea was it was supposed to be looked like kind of a, a place like a hideout you would go to um, in a safe um, sort of thematically based on the kind of place you'd go if you're on the lamb. And um, <laughs> it was, it was spectacularly designed. 
in terms of the vibe and the feel and, you know, the, the vinyl collection of like 3000 um, records in there. And um, they were the kind of records that you, that you buy, you know, you get in bulk, you can't, that there are the records that no one wants, which is the best, we're the best, you know, cause we just spend these obscure, weird things um, in there and, you know. Um, and it was a bar too. So people was, would, uh, would drink there or. It was, it was just a cool, cool spot you know yeah and uh, yeah yeah well i mean it was an invite only um the the people in the agency were all in it and it became a kind of a notorious after hours spot but my, my my people were really responsible it was never you know it was like you know you could go there sometimes and it would be a, a big night and you and you know you'd, you'd stop by and yeah. um there'd be people there it'd be you know two in the morning and it might be a little bit crazy. And then you go to work the next day at 8.30 and you'd never know it. You know, just really, it was a really cool, cool place. But I de- it, was, it was funny because you sometimes walk around Capitol Hill. Somehow it got like on, 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 online that it was like a bar, at, like on Google Maps and stuff. And I, I remember once I saw these people walking around going, the safe house. I know it's around here somewhere. It's right here. Where is it? You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's... Um, it was a great spot. Yeah. So your, your current situation, are you, are you splitting your time between Seattle and London? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's an interesting situation. It's a, in terms of like, um, I, I love, I love London right now in terms of, um, just the, the, the creativity that's there. And it just, it, I mean, I, I, I like Seattle. Seattle is a place that has been very good to me and, and, you know, it's not my native place, obviously. Yakima is, so. and and Seattle's had a big influence on me. But it, it is not. It's not a city that has a a massive creative community in terms of the the um, creative services area. I mean, design is pretty is very strong. Advertising has traditionally not been a uh, you know has this isn't one of the the great spots in the world for it. But there's a, just an environment in the UK, of, of, of certainly in London, that I find pretty amazing. And the quality of, of, of work that goes on over there and the desire to, to make it is um, pretty inspiring for me. So, I, I, I mean, I, I enjoy that. Plus, I, you, know, me, you know me, I like, I like weird stuff. And I like to, I think, um, soccer. Yeah. Soccer challenges. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a big influence too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean it's fun. To, it's fun to be over there. Um, I, but I, sometimes I think I watch more. I watch more over when I'm over here than I do over there because it, it you know, it get it starts at, at six in the morning here, and you know, over there it's like in the middle of the day, and you can't always just take time. And you know, it's great when it's actually you're you're, so, you're watching your soccer is out of, is out of the way by eight a.m. Right. So right, right. <laughs> um, so there's one advantage to being here. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm going back and forth and, and um, I have, you know, projects on both sides, but actually to be honest with you, a lot of my projects are still based here in the, in, in the U S and, um, but I'm able to work on them um, from London and I, and I um, have, a, have a great friend that has a, um, a company over there that, that if you think I've ever done anything interesting, then just take a look at, at, at this company and it's called unit nine in in london and um they're a, a production company of all things that sort of run the gamut of technology through um film and and they were you know i use them as a, a when you when you're making ideas at some level you need 
them to come to life. And that's when you bring in a production company to kind of physically do the thing that needs to be done, specialists. Um, and um, I had worked them initially on something, I think, for Pacifico a million years ago. But the, um, yeah, I work out of that office now. Um, and um, I get to be around. It's like the United Nations of geniuses. Nice. Um, and um, it's, it's a fun, fun place to be right there in Farringdon, which is a, a cool neighborhood and great street food. So um, you're, but I also, I, 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 go ahead. So you're, you're, you're basically, are, are, do you consider yourself to be freelance currently because you don't really have a, a big operation? You're sort of nimble that way? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could call, even you could call it freelance. Um, I, I tend to think of it more as a, as um, a consultancy because I, when I'm on a, on a bigger project, I'm generally working directly with a, a brand and freelances. I guess it's kind of, you could call it either way, but freelance tends to be working with it for another agency. So another creative company. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go directly and work with a, a, um, a, a brand or a client. Um, and then I, and then I um, have to bring in other, you know, consultants or freelancers to help me out on projects that require things that are outside of my skill set. But I tend to do more than I would have back in the day. Like I tend to do, I've expanded my, <laughs> my role to go farther up into the, to sort of the, the strategic thinking um, than I did prior um, in my prior days. I would usually have a, um, a specialist that would be a, a specific brand strategist. I, wouldn't, I would oversee that, but I would never get as involved as I do. But that was just kind of adding a little extra challenge to to what I'm doing. And I, and I wanted to kind of, one of the things that I wanted to do in this new capacity, I, I think that, that there's a, there's a you, been a shift in, in the way um, the value for of what, of how creativity is perceived and how it's, you know, the, its value in, in terms of why people want good stuff and how much they're willing to pay for it. And there is a, uh, um, it's become a bit of a um, more of a vendor type relationship than I would like. And by sort of getting more strategically involved upstream in the problem, in the, in the thing that we're trying to work on, then I'm, I'm able to kind of still satisfy my desire to actually do something um, that, that's intellectually challenging and smart and has more value downstream when it gets to execution and things like that. Um, because it's, it's coming from that, 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 um, a slightly different place, even though it, it evolves into a creative execution. Right. It's looked upon as slightly as a slightly different offering and, so, and one that I find challenging. So, yeah. So, so I sort of went way longer than I, I probably should have, because this has been yeah. a fascinating area that I just don't know a lot about. Uh, so thank you for spending so much time with me today, but I, I did want to ask, and I, I didn't even get to like this laundry list of, of, of questions oh, that yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask you. Um, but I do want to know for, for the benefit of my listeners, if anybody is interested in getting into this type of storytelling, which might be branding or rebranding that is um, kind of unique and not really like uh, commercial making at, or, or the ad man type of work that you would normally mm-hmm. think of stereotypically. Um, what should they be doing in college? What should they be studying? 
uh, what types of um, experiences should they be looking for to be able to get into this space? Because this seems like a really unique and special place to be. I mean, I think that, that, you know, for me, like, I, I think I kind of mentioned in, I, I, in, in college, it wasn't, there wasn't anything that was doing what I wanted to do. There was no role for me necessarily. And I didn't actually think that, that advertising was a thing for me. Um, I, th- I went to a specific school after I went to another two, two, two years to like a, um, now that's a grad school type of you know, thing. But before it was a, um, it was like more of an art school um, where I got to just work on, on creating ads and, and seeing what was around me. I, I, my thing was, I, I still think it's true that you find people that are doing the things that you admire and you study it and you try to figure out what, what makes it work and why it's good and then push yourself hard to figure out how to do that. I think that, that still like, I think classes in advertising and design are, are a great place to start. And then in and learning that craft and then also learning, you know, and making a point of, and what I always did was like, you know, I worked at Goodby Silverstein, which was a great agency, right? I, there were a few things that, I mean, I still can't do the, the work that they do, right? But I, there were certain things that I, that didn't go my way and, and I just would start to write them down what I would do differently. And, and over time, I had my own point of view. Uh, I, 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 I didn't necessarily know I was creating that. But when it came to time to start my own company, I knew exactly what it was going to be and how to sort of solve these problems. So I think that I, I, I don't know. I think that, that just kind of looking for, for people you admire and, and people that are doing things and, and, and studying that. But, but a great place to start is just design and, and, and advertising. You know, those are, they are, they, they blend, but they're, they're, they're slightly, obviously slightly different. I've, I try to blend them together myself. And also um, Venezuelan politics. Yeah. Yeah. Find an, find an obscure third world country (laughs) and learn and learn about it because you'll need that in life. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Uh, That's the definite, that's good advice. Brian, glad you pointed that out. Yeah, Jim, uh, I, I want to thank you for joining me and sharing your story with, uh, with my listeners and me, and um, also wish you safe travels back to London. Great, thanks. Um, really fun, really fun chatting with you, and it's it's fun that that you uh, kind of let it let it go rogue. Um, I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's rogue. just a nice way to talk to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.